Hello and welcome to the Emancipated Podcast, Season 1, Episode 4. I'm very excited to bring a conversation with John Schaff, who goes by the handle at J-P-S-H-A-F-F on Twitter. This is John's first podcast, and it was also the first time we've actually spoken outside of Twitter DMs. These are the types of conversations I envisioned when I decided to try podcasting. John has a ridiculous diversity of background experiences, which allow him to offer some unique perspectives. I really enjoyed today's discussion. I hope you do too. Allow myself to introduce myself. Cause I'm a toxic pleb. I don't play inflation. Oh, I'm a toxic pleb. I, I'm a just toxic pleb. I'm a just toxic pleb. I'ma get key seed phrase. Then we're gonna sink that boat. I eat filet mignon. I use my VPN. My money on fuckable. I'ma just toxic pleb. All right, today we welcome John Shaft to the Emancipated Plebcast. And John has one of the more unique backgrounds on Bitcoin Twitter. Um, and John and I have talked maybe for a little more than a year now. Um, he's got a military background, and I thought he might be able to shed some light on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, among other things. Uh, he's an independent thinker, and in my opinion, he doesn't seem too biased towards the state or, or even the plebs. Uh, he just wants what's best for humanity. So I valued his opinion and his insights. Hey, John, thanks for joining us. Welcome to my tiny show. Good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Um, I thought this would be a good way to have people get to know you. Have you done a podcast before? I've never done a podcast, no. Oh, awesome. Well, yeah. I've been podcast. interviewed, though, you know, for newspapers and stuff like that, but never a podcast. Oh, well, well there's, there's no there's no pressure like like the podcast world, John. Um, <laughs> so so uh, can you tell us where you're from and where you reside now? Yeah, uh, originally uh, born and raised in L.A. I'm an L.A. kid, Valley kid. Actually, um, a place called Calabasas. It's been uh, sort of famous for celebrities and whatnot, but people outside of L.A., I just say L.A. Oh, cool. And, um, n well, now I'm actually between multiple different countries. I've lived in 11 countries. And right now I'm, I'm transiting between um, my home in Houston, Texas, uh, Europe, and Ukraine, but my my office headquarters is actually in Hong Kong. Wow, that's yeah. a lot of different places, John. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I, wanted, I would have it a different way, but uh, you know, business is business. I found your bio online, and I just wanted to try to unpack it so people could get to know you. Um, and this is one of the more wild backgrounds I've ever seen, and it doesn't even include half the places you just mentioned. Um, no. But the bio starts with you're a MFA production candidate at USC School of Cinematic Arts. So what's that all about? I think that I think you found that bio on the MFA schools webpage. Right. 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 So like all their master's candidates had bios for 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 the for the people there. So after I left uh, the military. I wanted to take a new direction. Actually, the beginning of my life was all focused around um, being a congressman. So I had been an entrepreneur. I went and did uh, li lived in China. I had studied East Asian studies in my undergrad for political science, <clears throat> learned Chinese, went and lived in China, uh, and then left and answered, answered my country's call um, to fight in Afghanistan. And the whole plan during that whole time was like, look, if I want to be uh, a leader of people, 
in our political system um, and our nation is at war, uh, I should participate in it. I should understand what that it's a, what that's about uh, if I'm going to make policy on that. But after after seeing war in Afghanistan, after being through that process, uh, my appetites on politics really changed. Hmm. So I, I shifted over to media production, and that's what took me to USC. Okay. What years were you in China? Uh, originally, I was there, let's see, 2000, was it? Yeah, 2000, the end of 2003 to 2005. Okay. And then I had been back, you know, multiple times since then. And that was, and then I went back and I lived there and I started a business in China as well later. Okay. Yeah. And then, so then you graduated from uh, Florida State University with a, a degree in yeah, my, science? Yeah, my undergrad, uh, okay. Florida State University, political science with an emphasis in East Asian studies. Okay. And, and you worked uh, with the governor of Florida, Jeb Bush? Yeah, so um, uh, Florida State's in the capital, Tallahassee, Florida. Okay. So while I was studying there, um, I had an opportunity to, to work in his administration. Coincidentally, it was also at the same time I was starting my first business. Okay. So I've always sort of been pulled between both of those worlds. And then you earned a certification in project management from Syracuse University? Yeah, that was after I left the military. Okay. And then it goes on to say that you maintain an above top secret clearance from the Department of Defense. Right. So, yeah, well, uh, officers, you know, how, how secret clearance work is, um, well, first I should tell you how it works. Uh, so I was an officer and um, officers work a little different than an enlisted contract. Okay. Whereas uh, an officer gets his commission from the president um, and his duty is to um, defend the constitution itself. Uh, so that means if we ever receive an order that's unconstitutional, we can disobey that order. Uh, and our contract is essentially, we're, we're put on ready reserve up until 62 years old. Whereas an enlisted contract, it is the time limits of your contract, you're in, you're out, and your actual duty, your oath is to um, obey your superiors. So very different kind of power structure and commitment. Oh. So uh, for the secret clearance, you maintain your eligibility, uh, but it doesn't mean you always have um, access to the current information. So if you're not active duty, you can't just get on to like uh, what's called Cipernet, which is like the secret internet, the sort of Wikipedia for intelligence and just look up anything you want. No, it's, I'd have to be active duty for that. So I know you put some thought into this. Why would you come out on Twitter with like your name and, and talk about that? Uh, it's actually for my security. Uh, so I do business in many of the countries that are traditionally American adversaries, such as China, Russia, you know, these places. And um, their intelligence communities know, they know everybody who's in the intelligence infrastructure for the United States, whether they're active now or active in the past. Okay. Um, so it's not possible to hide that, and it's better to be open about that. Um, 
so that people, you know, don't think that I'm a spy. Okay. Not that I'll be able to convince them, but I just don't want to hide that, you know. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to ask that. Um, sure. So you were deployed to Afghanistan as a director of intelligence for Special Forces JISE. Right. Um, and JISE is a stands for Joint Intelligence Support Element. Okay. What kind of experience did you have there? Um, a JICE is a deployment force structure. So you don't have a JICE uh, in garrison or you really have it in theater. Um, and what a JICE does is it brings together various different intelligence disciplines. Um, but more importantly, from various different forces. That's why it's called a joint force. So like I had people under my command from the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, people from the CIA, um, from the Air Force, from the Navy. So various contractors, just a whole mix of intelligence professionals in one JICE to support our um, Special Forces mission. Wow, that's some crazy experience. Yeah, wow. it was interesting. And it says that you uh, served with distinction, earning multiple awards in combat, including the Army Combat Action Badge. Right. So thank you for your service, sir. Um, thank you for saying so. And uh, you advised in the areas of business and political economics at the national and international level for 15 years. Um, and you serve as the creative director for the International VJ Amritraj Foundation, um, serving charities in India. Yeah, that was, that was in the past. That foundation still exists, but um, okay. I'm no longer in that capacity with that foundation. Okay, and then in your free time, you became a third degree master mason? Correct. Yeah, we just got to round out the conspiracy theories about me there, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, that's a long process. You know, you enter, there's three, three levels of masonry. Um, you enter as an editor apprentice, and then you eventually make it up to master. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot to unpack, and I feel like we haven't even talked about your Bitcoin stuff yet. Yeah. Um, but, but how did you find Bitcoin? I mean, that's a pretty cliche thing to ask. And, and um, do you want to divulge when you got into Bitcoin? Yeah, that's no problem. I, I'm very open book. I'm not, uh, let's say, as uh, security aware as a lot of Bitcoiners. God bless them. That's totally fine with me. <laughs> um, so I first heard about uh, Bitcoin very early, like in 2013. Um, well, I wouldn't say that's early, but I, you know, early for most people. Sure. And I actually tried to get it, but it was just so sketchy back then. It was yeah, very difficult to get, you know, and I kept trying, but it wasn't a pressing issue for me. So finally I just gave up. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going on Silk Road. I'm not doing any of these sketchy exchanges, which I regret, of course. Yeah. Well, at least you didn't uh, do Mt. Gox in 13. That would have been a bad time to do that one. Right. I, I, I think I actually tried to do Mount Gox, but it just seemed sketchy, which, you know, <laughs> it was accurate. Uh, yeah. Anyhow, so I, I really got into it in a full scale capacity in 2016 when I had um, left USC. So I left the military, went to USC Masters, then left USC. Uh, and left that industry actually, because as I was looking at the business model in media, I realized everything was getting eaten by technology. And I have somewhat of a technology background at that time. My uncle was um, uh, sort of a 
famous early hacker in the 80s. He earned uh, when he was 18 years old or before he was even 18, he was doing parallel computing work for the US Army. Then he earned a full ride scholarship to Stanford sponsored by Rocketdyne. So, uh, and then he taught me programming at an early age, but I never really picked it up as like something I wanted to do professionally. But so he, was, uh, he was like an original cypherpunk. Original. I mean, he knows the guys, right? So, but it was not a thing for me uh, like it was for him. It's, it was always like a tool. But as I saw technology was disrupting every business industry, I was like, look, this is enough's enough. I need to retrain as a software architect. So that's when I came back to Bitcoin in a serious technical capacity in 2016. Okay. And um, can you tell us about Chef Holdings? It looks like you have a surplus energy mining program, but also some wallet payments and gaming lines of business. Right. Uh, well, Chef, Chef Holdings is an entity that's only been around since 2017. Okay. And I use that as essentially a holding company to roll up all my other business endeavors under one roof. You know, as I'm as I moved away from some of my investments, like being actively involved with them, and being more active on the the, the capital allocation side of investing, I, I put everything under that umbrella. Okay, how did Chef Holdings end up with a Hong Kong address? Uh, so I was in China to solve a supply chain issue for one of my. Uh, one of the businesses I had, which was a accessory manufacturing. So we became a certified uh, MFI developer for Apple and we were producing uh, accessories. And there was a supply chain problem at that time. So I had to head out to China to solve it. And I realized how deep the problem actually was. And I was like, I'm not gonna be able to solve this without spending some serious time here. So that's when I moved back to China uh, also, coincidentally, when I got into Bitcoin mining in 2017, or is that 2016? Can't remember. Um, okay. I made my first trip to Bitmain's campus in Beijing. And, did you meet uh, Jihan Wu? Uh, if I did, I, I didn't know who he was. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was when uh, what BTC China was the biggest exchange, I think, in the world at the time. Could have been. So, so you were a former Intel director for U.S. Special Forces. Um, so that's like way over my head. But, but with that experience, like, how does that help you view today's narratives differently than the plebs you see on, mm -hmm. on uh, Twitter? Uh, you know, what I, what I observe generally on Twitter, and, and generally speaking, I think the Bitcoin plebs tend to be sort of on the right side of the spectrum, if you had to force them there. Mm. Um, more like, you know, a very strong libertarian uh, ideology amongst Bitcoiners, I think. And part of libertarianism is really about um, uh, concepts on the justification around force, you know. Plebs and libertarians seem to have a very strong view on when force is justified and when it's not. Okay. Uh, and being involved in the use uh, of force in defense and offense, I think it provides me a little bit more nuanced perspective on, on maybe when it is actually necessary for the greater good. Yeah. 
I mean, when you know how strong force can be, I think a lot of people kind of think of it in terms of like halfway actions, but um, it, I don't know. It seems like um, it, it's a slippery slope to get to uh, all out force. Well, I'll tell you a story. So there's a big day in every young intelligence officer's life where you finally receive your clearance <clears throat> and you get access to the cipernet, right? <clears throat> and you get access to JWICs. So the, these are like the secret uh, networks where all the, the, you know, the, the cool info is. And on that day, you get your clearance, you get your access and everyone just dives in, right? And it's really just an ocean of information. It truly is like the Wikipedia of the intelligence community. And you have access uh, uh, not just to like army intelligence information, but DOD wide. You have access to Department of State you know, overlap information and you have access to a lot. Um, and one, on that first day, I, I'll never forget one of the first things that popped up to me. It was um, cartel intelligence on the border. And I watch this woman peel the skin off of her victims alive, right? Sounds horrifying. Yeah. Now that was just my first entry into really seeing the other side of, of America's adversaries. And you can say definitely the cartels are among America's top adversaries domestically for sure. And as I continued down the intelligence rabbit hole, uh, you learn things, just how bad it really is out there. And then when I went out and experienced it, you know, firsthand, and you just have access to the things that our adversaries are actively trying to do to us on a daily basis. And it really changes your perspective okay. on the kind of actions that are necessary on our end. America thinks the use of force is like a slap now. <laughs> Unfortunately, in some cases, but also, you know, it's not a bad thing to err on the side of caution, but it gets to a point where actually um appeasement like i've said on twitter appeasement becomes escalation at a certain point hmm. so what are most people missing about the russia ukraine story I, I know you've got some strong feelings on this yeah uh well you know yeah i i don't i don't claim to be an expert i would say that i'm my expertise is more in china and asia but I, I do have, a, I would call myself a well-read, interested observer on the Russia situation. You know, I've also done business in Russia. I have a business in Ukraine. I know the people. I know, I know the, uh, the players. So, but politically, I would say this. Really, for me, the situation comes down to this story that began in 1992 that went to 1994 and ended with the Budapest Memorandum. And the story goes like this. In 1992, the senior Bush administration created a policy of denuclearization of Ukraine. And uh, George Bush Sr., along with his Secretary of State James Baker, really pushed Ukraine hard to denuclearize through what was called the Lisbon Protocol. Uh, and the president of Ukraine at that time, a guy named Kravchuk, if I'm pronouncing his name properly, I'm probably not. He, it was a hard no for him. He, he rejected it out hand. And um, the reason why he rejected it is really important to today. <clears throat> in, 1990, <clears throat> in 1993, 
um, when Clinton came into office, he told Clinton, look, the reason why we won't denuclearize is because the second we do that, Russia is gonna use the ethnic Russian minorities in Ukraine. And he specifically detailed Donetsk, which is one of these hot button, hot button regions for today's problems. And he said he, they're gonna use Donetsk to split Ukraine and then enact a policy of dismemberment, <clears throat> which is exactly what's happening now. And he said, unless you give us an Article 5 type of security assurance, Article 5 is like um, this section of the NATO agreement that says, once you attack any of the NATO members, you're immediately attacking everyone and everyone come to your defense. Mm -hmm. So Kravchuk said, look, this will happen if we don't have some kind of Article 5 security assurance. <clears throat> so finally, <clears throat> excuse me. So finally, around 1994, Clinton caved, and we have the documents to prove this, by the way. And he gave Kravchuk, quote unquote, strong security assurances that if he denuclearized, America would defend him in the case of another nuclear power attacking Ukraine or threatening to use nuclear force. That was the Budapest Memorandum. That is what Ukraine signed. So it's kind of on us for putting pressure on them to denuclearize? Correct. And then we agree. They said, that, look, if we, do if we denuclearize, they predicted exactly this would happen. Mm -hmm. And so we said, we provided them strong assurity, uh, security assurances and a legal framework in the Budapest Memorandum, which Russia signed. So if that were the case, and maybe the answer is obvious, why wasn't Ukraine a part of NATO? Uh, NATO has various different like criteria for membership. For example, like your entire territory must be uncontested. Like you can't have some kind of ongoing war or ongoing like territorial disputes in order to join. Because if you do that, then it's essentially obligate. It's creating a problem for NATO already in advance, right? Now you can say there have been exceptions okay. in the past and there have been, but that's one of the primary reasons why they weren't accepted into NATO, hmm. along with other things. So in a way, we kind of put ourselves in a corner by, by making these promises, we, almost without anything like official. I wouldn't say it's a corner. I, I would say we made a security trade-off agreement, right? We wanted a denuclearized Ukraine. That was our clear goal from George Bush to Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. So if that was our policy and we made a security assurance to Ukraine to achieve that policy, then we're obligated to provide that security, in my if, opinion. Is that because they were afraid of nuclear weapons going rogue? Because they were kind of an ally of ours, right? Why um, do we care about Ukraine's nuclear weapons? You know, at that time, and again, I don't have all the facts of that time. Sure. Um, at that time, uh, nuclear was like a big deal. We were just coming out of the 80s. The Cold War was just ending. Nuclear policy was a huge thing under Ronald Reagan's administration. That was sort of the zeitgeist at that time. We were all very still worried about nuclear war. Mm -hmm. So I think the momentum of that sort of policy just took itself straight to the middle of the 90s. Um, I don't think it was an aberration. That was a big thing everywhere at that time. Okay. So one of the things that confuses me about the conflict is that uh, 
you know, uh, the, the media, which I think is a clear enemy of the people, is really pushing like the Ukraine sympathy. And Russia does seem like the aggressors here, but, but it's, it, it almost <clears throat> makes you trust uh, what's going on less just because the media is pushing it so much. We, we went from the COVID uh, propaganda to now Ukraine's being forced in your timelines. You know, it's things that you're not even following, but it's all about that. So I'm suspicious about the motives just because the media is so pro-Ukraine. Um, why do you think that is? Like the state that controls the media is trying to make this so public. What do you think is going on there? Well, uh, first of all, I share, I share that um, skepticism. You know, how could anybody go through the last couple of years and, and not have that kind of skeptic skepticism against anything the media seems to be universally endorsing, mm -hmm. okay? That being said, I also have sort of a, a fact and truth filter. So it's like, if I see facts and truth coming out of anyone's mouth, even, even my enemy's mouth or somebody who's lied in the past, I'm not gonna allow it to uh, dissuade me from that being the truth of the fact. So, but why I think the media generally accepts or generally supports Ukraine, let's just get off the, the obvious, which is, you know, it is true. Russia is an aggressor. We do have security agreements to protect Ukraine. Um, the media, generally speaking, is left-leaning. And, uh, you know, Russia has been in their crosshairs forever. So it's such an easy, like, easy stance for them to take. And, um, you know, an overarching thing that what must be said is that Ukraine wants to join this sort of European, Western, World Economic Forum agenda. Um, and they want to join it and it would be seen as another um, strong member against, let's say, Russia, their enemy. So there's just so many reasons why I think it aligns for them to support yeah, but the World Economic Forum seems like an enemy of the people. So on one hand, you feel for Ukraine. On the other hand, if they're going to make that stronger, that's almost bad for the rest of us. Yeah, that's one way to think about it. Um, but the way I look at it is like Ukraine's stuck in the middle. They don't have a lot of great options, right? Like, do they want to... Um, be part of the Western system or the Eastern system. Both systems have flaws and strengths. And uh, you can't blame a small power like that from choosing at least uh, a system that provides some layer of self-determination, mm -hmm. right? We can argue about like what level of self-determination does the West provide versus the East? That's a legitimate debate, but um, Russia's actions now prove that Ukraine is trying to make the right decision. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad and you brought that. Kravchuk's prediction in 1993 mm -hmm. that Russia would do exactly this shows that Ukrainians have been seeing this clearly mm -hmm. for, you know, since their birth as a nation. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for bringing up the WEF. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, so, so if the line is, uh, it's bad to be aggressive and, and attack other countries. Like, is the U.S. guilty of doing these things now? Um, uh, you know, we don't hear about these things as much, but we, we do things in our own self-interest too, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, 
so so just moving on um what what are people missing about china and the middle east right now i mean obviously that's kind of out of the news a bit yeah i remember actually distinctly like three or four years back when all of the policy think tanks the papers on the middle east and terrorism basically started to disappear and they were all replaced by eastern themes russia china etc so it is a clear reversal of strategy and focus but um, what I think people are missing on the Middle East is that it's, it's largely run by um, a religious ideology. So the politics follow the religious ideology and the West views the Middle East, in my opinion, through a political lens. Hmm. But really, uh, you really just need to look at one map to begin your framework on the Middle East. And that's a Sunni-Shia split map. And what's interesting about that map is you'll see that conveniently all the Shia Muslim nations seem to be aligned with the Eastern powers and all the Sunni Muslim nations seem to be allied with the Western powers, hmm. which is a little known fact, right? The so religious split. There is a huge religious split uh, in the Middle East. And so I think people miss that and they should really look at it through that lens in order to frame, you know, current events. Okay. I'll have to think about that. My, my wife's from the Middle East. I, I've got <laughs> to learn about it some more. Oh, yeah? Which country? Uh, Iran. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's a yeah. Shia, that's a Shia country. Okay. Yeah, see, I didn't, I didn't even know that. I should know yeah. these things. But, um, <laughs> I mean, she loves it here. She, she felt not very free there, so... She loves America and, you know, she's very pro. She actually, she's a, a physician at the VA hospital. She works with the vets. Um, oh, great. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I complain about things around here a lot more than she does because I think she appreciates it more. <laughs> yeah. It's always interesting how the first and second generation of immigrants seem to be more patriotic or a little bit more right wing than their subsequent generations. Yeah. Because they I'm have that experience. For sure. Um, so uh, can the U.S. still afford to be like the world police when, when so many players have nuclear weapons? Like, is it, is it not reasonable to think that if we enter armed conflict with superpowers that it might escalate? Uh, that is exactly what will happen. It will escalate. Yeah, I mean, that but might it depends be what you mean by world police. Uh, like being involved in all these different regions. I, I, I agree where I agree with um, these sort of Charles Lindbergh like figures like Tucker Carlson and whatnot. T Charles Lindbergh was a famous he was a congressman or senator, but he was famous for resisting um, America's entry into World War II. Okay. And he was, you know, sort of pro-German and all that kind of stuff. So I, I sympathize with these figures that say, look, we really need to make sure our involvement in any kind of war or anything outside of America is within our interest for sure. But, and then for me, then the debate moves and is it in our interest to uphold our legal agreements with other nations? And that's a legitimate debate and it should be had, mm. but it can, we cannot just say, look, it doesn't affect, we're not there. It doesn't directly affect us without also saying, okay, I am willing to break these agreements. If we're going to do that, we should only say we do have the security agreement and we're going to break it. And here is why. Yeah, I don't I don't feel like it's really being publicized 
that this is about the agreements. Right. Um, it's being totally ignored. Well, some 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 media is covering it for sure, but the right is certainly ignoring it. Really? Like my side, I'm definitely on the right. I would say I'm somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan, actually. <laughs> but uh, we're definitely ignoring it. Why, why is, why is it that way with the right more than the left? Well, justifiably, the right is really concerned about the domestic situation in America. And in in the case of Bitcoiners, they're very concerned with the fiscal situation in America. And the idea is something like, look, we have so many problems at home. We have so many problems with our economics. Why are we going to get involved in the war right now? when our own house is not in order uh, okay. i think that's the thinking okay yeah fiscal politics um yeah. so so in in a sound money environment like how does geopolitics change so this is where this is where i have softball. probably seen on my what's that it's a softball no i'm kidding yeah yeah <laughs> Well, this is where you've probably seen where I, I have the largest divergence, I would say, from Bitcoin Twitter, which is, so I wrote a paper uh, December of 2020, I think it was. Christmas oh, Day. Big, yeah, uh, Christmas Day. I read it, yeah. Yeah, Bitcoin Commonwealth, where I do believe that um, Bitcoin as, a, you know, superior, as the greatest form of uh, store of value in all of history will eventually uh change politics where i where i differ is that i don't think humans can use a 100 sound money system i think humans require credit uh and maybe this is my business background that brings me to this but uh in a very practical sense expenses always come before profit so that means you have to spend money you don't have in order to build things that you don't have yet in order to achieve your profit. So I don't know if you use credit to start your medical practice, um, but uh, I believe this affects you know mm-hmm. uh, economics at the small and the large scale. How you can create a society without credit, I don't think it can be done. Would a credit market not... Mm not be built on top of Bitcoin at some point? I, I absolutely believe it will be. I, it's already mm. being built on Bitcoin right now. I mean, Bitcoin is beginning to collateralize a lot of different debts. Yeah. But at that point, then you have fiat because what is fiat, right? It's anything that's not sound money. Credit right. is not sound money. Well, Bitcoin, I guess, would have more uh, importance on actually paying back the debt. In In the current system, it's always kind of just kind of well, that's right. That's where I believe uh, uh, humans will play out the same dynamic with Bitcoin as they did with gold, in my opinion. Right. So now we're starting to get coll- Bitcoin collateralized debt or mm. credit. OK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's to stop them from continuing to lower the ratio of Bitcoin to credit? That the same Actual reserve do. banking. Exactly. Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. We're already doing that with Bitcoin. That's like what half of DeFi is. Mm hmm. Yeah, but it does empower the individual more. Um, it does for sure. I mean, yeah, there's does a lot of different things. That's interesting though. Um, how it, so in a sound minor environment? How does the size of militaries change and, and military strategy change? 
Uh, I also don't think it changes anything because militaries are possible based on credit. Mm -hmm. So if you if you're not the humans have um, in psychology they have something called revealed preference, right? And there's a difference between what you say your preference is and what your actions actually show. What your actions show is what your revealed preferences are, right? So we can say as Bitcoiners, okay, we prefer hard money. But I would say most Bitcoiners have fiat currency in their bank account, right? Sure. So our revealed preference is to use fiat, even though it is actually possible to live off Bitcoin only, but it's such a pain in the butt, right? <clears throat> so um, humans have a revealed preference and a necessity to use credit and militaries require credit. Well, especially modern militaries, man, it's so expensive. I, I didn't follow the get on zero crowd. Um, I mean, the, it's, it's a pain because the rails really aren't there yet. It's a, it's a baby, you know, industry. And uh, if, if they have credit cards and apps that work just the same, then it would be right. just the same using it, but it's not really not there. Right. Um, I think there, it will be there. I think the rails will too. be there for sure. And I think even when the rails are there, people will still use credit. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's uh, we're incentivized for that high time preference, right? We want to get stuff now. Exactly. Um, so if it's if where it's I there, think, we'll use it. Right. Where I think Bitcoin really shines is that it is really it makes it possible for a smaller group of people. I'm not talking about these mega states like the United States or you know Russia or whatever, mm -hmm. where a smaller group of people uh, to manage their economics and their current account balance using a hard money and minimal credit that mm. for the first time is possible using um uh, bitcoin's protocol that's never been possible before yeah well in a deflationary environment they wouldn't have to start with a lot that was part of i think your argument in that commonwealth paper right right um, was that kind of a precursor to the citadel idea like had people been talking about the citadel idea at the time uh actually where i got that idea is i, I wrote that paper when i was in ecuador Coincidentally, oh, yeah. that was actually the same time, around the same time that, um, what's the founder's name of Strike? Jack, Jack Mahler. Mahler's, yeah. He was in uh, El Salvador. And I, had, I didn't even know who he was at that time. And, but we were actually both doing sort of the same thing. I was in Ecuador trying to study how uh, a poor society could potentially use uh, wallet software. You asked me about my wallet software, but I was in Ecuador studying that. Mm -hmm. And when I began to talk to um, farmers and the people who would use a hard money and just asking them practically questions like, how would you start this business using Bitcoin? How would you do this? How would you do that? That is when I realized um, there's no escaping credit. Hmm. I, I had a hard time following Jack Mahler's after he was hugging Pedro all shirtless. And it got, it's a got big blessing. club and, and and i'm not in it yeah <laughs> i want to hug pedro shirtless too um so so when i was reading that you're involved in asset management so how does your strategy differ from like traditional financial advisors uh how does our strategy uh well, i just i wouldn't I imagine that your, your asset management has something to do with bitcoin Yes, yes, yeah. I wouldn't say our strategy differs, but I would say our approach does. Mm. So like, um, you know, I would put you know, bad asset managers 
look at um, look at financial or look at uh, investing as uh, in the terms of financial products and the kind of yield and fees that those financial products can generate for themselves and their their clients. Hmm. Uh, I think good asset managers invest and think in terms of risk uh, in relation to time horizons. Um, uh, and so I would put ourselves in that second category. And then where the art comes in is how you judge risk. That's where the art comes in. And so we have a very specific way of looking at risk through the terms of the pricing of demand. So where is demand priced correctly or is mispriced? And so wherever demand is mispriced the most is where the greatest opportunity is and the least risk. Okay. Yeah. That's our basic approach. And Bitcoin is one of those things where the, it's so mispriced versus the future demand that the, the true risk of Bitcoin is far lower than I think the traditional finance industry understands. They're starting to understand it, but I don't think right. they truly understand it yet. It's priced at like under 5% of going to a million. That's well, we have, a, we have a, mo a model I created actually. I created the math behind it, which is essentially like price per user. And um, how we determine what the user is, is proprietary, but we reached a, a peak a little after uh, the act, the price peak in, in November at around, I think it was, I can't remember, I think it was 11 cents per user. I'd have to look again. But this price per user actually takes into account real demand, the actual people using Bitcoin and storing value with Bitcoin versus mm -hmm. the price. Um, so that's how we, one of, one of our models to measure it. Yeah, it seems like something that everybody will need. Um, what other assets are mispriced, do you think? Are you allowed to talk about that? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we're... Let me think about... You know, commodities, physical commodities. Obviously, everybody kind of knows that. In an inflationary environment, right? Um, any kind of secure cash flow that's going to adjust to inflation is mispriced, uh, depending on the price. I mean, it has potential to be mispriced. So that's how we look at it. Everything's going to be worth more tomorrow. U.S. dollars themselves, in my opinion, especially dollars that exist on blockchains, mm. those are also mispriced. Hmm. Like yeah. Tether? Meaner. Right. Hmm. So um, I think I had read that you were involved in electronics manufacturing. So right. can you tell us about that? Yeah, when I... Um, so I, grad, I left the military at the same time as a, one of my good buddies who I was in intelligence school with. And uh, we, I went to the number one film school in the world, USC, and then he went to the number one business school in the world, Harvard Business. And we both left around the same time and we caught back up. And this is when I was retraining as a software architect. And he said, hey, he went to Amazon after business school. And he's like, hey man, I think Apple is going to deprecate the auxiliary jack from the new iPhone. Um, you know, that headphone jack? Sure. And he's like, do you want to do something with me? Like to make a sort of like a dual, a dual adapter thing. 
because that uh, hardware requires software actually it's called firmware mm. it's the software that goes onto chips and so that's when i i said yeah let's 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 give it a try so then i dug into it um we made a um adapter design for what was actually the first in the market of a, of a dual charging and auxiliary headphone adapter for the iPhone before Apple even announced. So when Apple announced, we were already ready. Oh, and that cool. sucker, that sucker flew, man. I mean, it went crazy. So that's what got me into electronics manufacturing and then eventually brought me to China. Huh. Are you still involved in that? No. Well, I mean, we still have, we still have residual inventory, but the economics of that really changed with Trump's tariffs on China mm. and the whole situation. And then inflation started kicking and it, the, the margins on that business became super thin. And then we, we were also selling on Amazon. Um, and just the economics stopped making sense. So we, we wrapped that up. Okay. Yeah. I think that the deals, keep changing so it's it, what worked yesterday doesn't actually keep working um, right so so what's what's bitcoin mining like for you uh, these days funny enough actually we just had a one of the best deals offers to us and like i would have probably made chef would have probably made like at least 50 million on this deal we were just offered um like almost a gigawatt worth of uh, S19 miners <clears throat> out of Russia at a price of, and only miners will understand how ridiculous this price is, right. at a price of 350 to $400 per miner because um, these Russian uh, miners are, or I'll put it like this, Russian energy providers right now are in are in a bad situation for dollars uh of course i didn't take it because of my political and ideological standpoints on what's happening wow but uh that's that's the state of our relate i mean we we run hash power we run quite a bit of hash power that's what actually took me to ukraine um and we we had actually a, a a memorandum of understanding with Ukraine's state nuclear agency, a company called Energoatom. It's a it's a SOE, state-owned enterprise. Before this whole uh, war broke out, and those deals were ongoing, but that's that obviously can't go forward now. If so, we still mine, but we're not expanding anything. Um, and what we're looking at right now is just a massive introduction of new hash it's just exploding mm. and with new hash providers like intel and whatnot i mean it's just going to continue to explode so it's really a game of scale did you do well when china banned it and then the hash rate went down in general uh yeah well anyone who had miners on did well i mean our your profits you know double tripled mm -hmm. we never mined in china i never mined in china uh because i knew the political situation there if energy companies are hurting for, for cash inflow, why don't they just mine themselves? Um, I probably because they have a difficult time converting the Bitcoin to dollars. What they need is dollars. Hmm. You know, the Bitcoin itself is not necessarily going to help them if they can't convert it. And that's 
that's the whole that's the whole game I've been posting about convertibility for like years. Mm. But if and when they're able to go on a Bitcoin standard, then there's really no nothing holding them back. Who Russia? Anybody? Any energy company that's hurting? You know, the energy companies that I've dealt with around the world, they it doesn't matter how many miners they support, they're not ideologically aligned with Bitcoin. They're, okay. they're really, they really don't care less, you know? Yeah. They don't, they don't see it. If you're getting state support, you don't want to risk that. They want cash. They don't mm. care about Bitcoin. Mm. My experience with them, and I've dealt with huge energy providers. Okay. And if they get Bitcoin, they convert it. So in your opinion, is it feasible for individuals to still mine Bitcoin at home or is it best suited for bigger companies now? I hear conflicting things on this. Yeah, well, it, it depends on two things. It depends on your price of power or your, your price of electricity, obviously. And then also your local the purchasing power of your local currency. So if we're talking about individual miners, let's say in India, who mine a dollar's worth of Bitcoin, you know, a dollar can, depending on your economic status and where you are in India, a dollar can go pretty far. Um, but a dollar in the United States, you know, it won't feed one person for one meal. So I think the window is generally closing if it's not already closed, to be honest. I went to a local lacrosse match on Saturday with my daughter and uh, we, we went to the concession stand and we got two hot pretzels. They were like more like warm pretzels one beer and one water and it cost 32 something plus tip dear lord it was insane i'm just laughing um i remember some story about the costco ceo some some one of his managers or something suggested to raise the price of their hot dog or whatever and the guy was like i will kill you <laughs> right because like that price is you just can't get those prices anymore for food yeah i don't I don't think people are even seeing this coming, but, um, so, yeah. so on my podcast, you know, my, 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 uh, you're my fourth guest and I have a bugging out theme that I try to hit on with everybody. Okay. So, so as somebody with a military background, you're especially interesting for this. Can you give us some bugging out tips? Um, yeah, I would say that, uh, first you need to make your bug out scenarios based on you need to make them scenario based, not just uh, like I, I have some bunker and a place with food and weapons. No, okay. Your bug out should be based on the scenario. So, is it a are you bugging out because of nuclear war? Are you bugging out because of civil war? You know that kind of thing. Because right. you're going to prepare for those very differently. Yeah, that would be my first tip. It's interesting. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Um, so, so do you think that? Like, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners like, oh, I'm going to buy a bunch of guns or whatever. But do you think that people should be preparing to go to combat or would they be better off focusing on fixing the money that might limit um, unlimited funds in terms of being able to control them? Uh, yeah, I was I would I would put it more towards on, on the latter option. I think people should really focus on strengthening their own balance sheet, strengthening their own community, strengthening their resilience. Because I don't see that people can win armed conflicts against state militaries in, in the modern day. Right. Back in the day, sure. Not today. Yeah, I, th I think we need to be focused on those kinds of things too. Um, 
so so philosophy what does bitcoin mean to you and, and honestly if somebody asked me this i, I just get <laughs> stuck because I, I just go off in so many different directions i could spend a whole day and not get the answer right but what, what do you think sure i actually don't um i would say if i had a portion out my views on bitcoin i would say it's 90 percent practical um uh practical you know uh thinking and then like maybe 10 percent philosophical thoughts the 90 the 10 percent philosophical thoughts i would say uh bitcoin represents the very first time that even a small group of people can um manage their own money supply which has always been impossible because small groups of people cannot institute technology that will prevent forgery and double spending and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Right. So if you want to form a society, you actually now can do it around a hard form of money. It's a tool that can strengthen a small community. Right. Never been possible before. Okay. The, cool. the practicality side of it is, is I put it in a hierarchy of importance of technology. So I don't put it above the microchip because Bitcoin cannot exist without the microchip. Um, but I put it above a lot of other technological innovations. It's one of maybe the five most important technological innovations of human history. But in this case, you're able to have a share of all the microchips that will ever be made. Right, but at the same time, none of that share could be used without microchips. Right. That's why I, that's why I put it below microchip. When microchips disappear all of a sudden, Bitcoin will technically not disappear, but it, it will not be accessible. You cannot change a ledger without a microchip. So so I was going to ask you what some what some threats are to Bitcoin that you think people aren't taking seriously enough. Is one microchips disappearing? No, I, you know, the, I think the window for technological threats is closing fast if it's not already closed like and what i view as a true threat is anything that can create double spending affect a ledger that kind of thing mm -hmm. right so i, I really right. i'm not a proponent of that i think you can throttle bitcoin's usage with technology such as the domain name system the ip system those technologies which bitcoin relies on to be used are also federally regulated mm -hmm. um but uh, the, the things I think people are starting to catch on is convertibility, right? Because if it's, if it's Bitcoin, but it's KYC Bitcoin, right? is it, you know, like how useful is that for some of the use, for some of the protection that we want Bitcoin for? Right. If, if you're liable to report everything and it's a risk every time you use it, then that's not so great. Right. I've always I've, I've been posting now for a couple of years that I think the true future of Bitcoin is bifurcated between KYC Bitcoin and non-KYC Bitcoin. Now people could say, oh, yeah, sure, I can spend my non-KYC Bitcoin, right? Just like I can download a song illegally on LimeWire or whatever the file sharing services now, right? But what is the truth is the truth is 99% of the population uses Spotify and Apple Music, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I see the future of Bitcoin really, unfortunately, being KYC Bitcoin, and most people will transact in KYC Bitcoin. Yeah, I think there's a threat that people don't talk about, where if 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 all the exchanges and things blacklist the the you know mixed Bitcoin uh, and make you know I th I think that it's possible that they'll make it hard to use. 
Um, and a lot of the people I listen to on podcasts, I don't, I don't think really appreciate that part of it. Yeah. I mean, obviously- I mean, I'm prepared for it. You're prepared for it. a lot of the plebes are prepared mm-hmm. for it, but you know, we are a very tiny minority in my opinion. Yeah. Hopefully those kinds of bad actors that do um, support those kinds of systems will get, you know, kind of cut out of the market. Um, I know there was some backlash on, for example, what was it Wasabi recently? Right. Or something like that. Um, blacklisting addresses. So um, hopefully the market will continue to be dictated by people that, that know what's going on. Um, now I see our future basically defined by the politics of the current COVID generation. These kids that we've just masked up for like two years and abused yeah. and all these have no political agency yet. When they grow older and they have the political agency and the memories of what's happened to them during these two years, they're going to remake the world in a way we cannot even imagine. Hmm. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully in a good way. Um, I like to tell my daughter that that all this stuff has not really been normal. So don't don't <laughs> think that this is the way things are supposed to be. <laughs> right. Um, what are some bullish narratives uh, for Bitcoin that you think are not priced in yet? Uh, collateralization, like we were talking about before, with like uh, credit. I, I think Bitcoin is uh, rapidly becoming a you know tier one. Mm-hmm. Basel three type collateral asset that's going to make its way in, into like thousands of financial products at the same level that U.S. Treasury bonds do. Cool. So, so I don't know the answer to this question, but do you think that we're in a bull market or a bear market right now? Well, I generally don't think about things in terms of bull and bear, like you know, except to make jokes. Yeah, but if I had to say, I would say we're in a bear market, and I measure bear, I, I measure bull or bear based on volume trends. So a deep study of Bitcoin volume, and um, you know, even in this recent pump we have now, it's not supported by the volume. What does that mean? Meaning we may have retraced in price to a certain level, but did we take, did we come back to this price level with the same volume? as we were the last time we were here and we didn't. I see you posting about that. That does help me see what's going on a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you But I'm you know, open to being wrong, you know, I, I love being wrong because it helps me learn. Yeah. It's, it's a, I don't know. It's just a wild beast. I, I gave up trying to predict what it's really going to do. I just like, I like talking about this fun. Um, sure. But when you ride through a couple of bear markets, you're like, whatever, after a while. So. Oh, totally. Um, so in 2022, um, you know, we're still near the beginning of the year. What would you like to see happen this year in Bitcoin? Like, in your opinion, like, what are you looking at uh, as far as what would be a very positive thing? I think 2022 has been probably the most bullish, weirdly, even though the yeah. price doesn't really fall. 2022 has been the most bullish year for Bitcoin, I think, in its history. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to talk about the events And again, like I said, my philosophy as an investor centers around demand. We've had a number of bullish demand events for Bitcoin, from Bitcoin bonds to being adopted as a national, or I would say not a national currency, but, you know, convertible at the national level. Let's say in El Salvador or various different South American countries. The most recent um, 
regulations that were released uh, were not bearish. They seem to give Bitcoin a true path to legality. I mean, I could just keep going. 2022 has already been a hugely bullish year. But I think, um, and I think when price finally does turn around and we go for the next run, it will be epic. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, yeah. I think the macro picture is really weighing us down right now. That's why macro like equities and other financial stuff. They're not trying to stop it. They're trying to figure out how to regulate it, which everybody mm -hmm. you know, doesn't like, but it kind of means we're over that hump. Yeah, in a way, I think so. I agree with you. So what was your motivation to get into production? And what are you doing with that now? I'm not doing anything with that. It was really about being involved in media production. Um, and, you know, that's the personal side of me. I've always been a storyteller and a writer. Um, I remember being bombed out in Afghanistan one time and I was under my blanket writing a screenplay. Right. Because sometimes when you're that's getting heavy. bombed, you just have nothing, to, nothing else to do. You just say, OK, well, I hope it doesn't hit me. But at the time I was I was writing the screenplay and we're getting bombed out and I'm just still wrapped up in this. Well, but to be fair, we were bombed all the time. So it's not like some random event where you would just uh, jump up and leave. Oh, I'm glad they didn't hit you, man. Yeah, me too. Well, we, well yeah, anyhow, another so, story. So, you know, with your production background, what's your favorite movie? My favorite movie is The Fisher King with Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams. It's a little known. It. Yeah, I think I can't remember. Early 90s, I think okay. it was. It's a it's a great movie about life. All right, cool. I will check yeah. that out. So so what else is important that I forgot to ask you about? Uh, I think you wanted to talk about uh, you had mentioned sometime before about the World Economic Forum in Russia. Yeah. 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 What uh, details did we leave out there? Yeah, I think so. There's the, the right is also putting this sort of narrative that, OK, look, Russia is a counterbalance to the World Economic Forum. Mm. And um, I don't agree with that. Okay. You know, uh, the, the, the Russian oligarchs have been participating in the World Economic Forum for years. Um, and, you know, there was a guy who was instrumental in bringing Putin to power. And he wrote an essay early on before he left Putin's side sometime around 2012 or 2012. And he said, look, what you have to understand about Putin is he's not, he wants to be part of the world system. He thought the Bolsheviks were stupid to cut out their elites from that system, to cut out capitalism, to be so foolishly ideolo ideological. The way Putin thinks about it is he wants his capitalists to be even stronger than the Western capitalists. He wants to work in the Western system, but beat the Western system within their system which is why he had worked most of the beginning of his career to join that system. You know, his, his oligarchs have been in the World Economic Forum, Deripaska, uh, Vexisberg, and um, Kostin, all guys who attend Davos. But is the World Economic Forum on the side of true capitalism? No, right. they're anti-capitalism, they're socialist. Totally. So, I mean, the way I like to think about, you, you, you should really watch a video that the World Economic Forum released, I think it was in 2020, 
2021 after the Great Reset campaign sort of failed, okay? It was striking. There's a moment in this video where it says, and I quote, um, uh, the climate change is going to dwarf the damage that the pandemic did. And 2020, 2020 made it obvious to us that capitalism is dead. Mm -hmm. Think about that. That is a striking statement for this international body with members of the elite and business and politics who all participated in to say capitalism is dead. They said this. I mean, I mean, it seems like we haven't had it for a long time. And, and don't get me wrong, I didn't think that World Economic Forum was capitalist. Sure. It seems like they're steering away from that. But then I got confused when you're saying that Putin's trying that's to- my, Right, that's my point, right? Uh -huh. Because Putin and China and all these powers are all part of this same system. And Putin wanted to be part of the same system. I mean, what is part of this new religiosity uh, that's coming out of the World Economic Forum, climate change. Climate change is like mm. the center of this new religion. Well, guess who's been funding funding climate change groups in the West? Russia. Hmm. Did you know that? No. Yeah, Russia's been funding climate change NGOs okay. in the West. They are part of this climate change ideology. They're so part of this forum. If the WEF is on all sides, then we're all kind of in trouble no matter who wins these that battles. That is my point. That is my point. Yes, absolutely. So what's going to happen if Putin, let's say, you know, I wrote that paper of how I thought this conflict was going to end hmm. right when it started. And in the end, if there is a de-Putinization, that's all it will be. The round of Russian oligarchs who will come after Russia will continue the same WF Davos agenda that they've already been participating all these years. Yeah. Putin is trying to exact a price on the United States with Ukraine, right? It's not, he's not trying to resist the system he's been helping. So on a macro level, we're kind of screwed. So people are better off forming small communities that are expensive to attack. Resilient, small communities, right? Yeah. Because yeah. this the C, the CBDC is coming there. Everybody knows yeah. it. It's coming. Yep. And it's going to take everything. Everything in its path. Yeah, it's going to be fiat on steroids, and everybody's going to think it's the answer. <laughs> Big time. And then we're, we're going to, at that time, we're going to be living in this bifurcated world of KYC and non-KYC Bitcoin. And that KYC Bitcoin will be freely exchangeable with CBDCs, but non-KYC Bitcoin will not be able to be exchanged with CBDCs because CBDC would be programmable and you can easily make that transaction undoable. Mm -hmm. So convertibility yeah. through CBDCs, KYC Bitcoin, that's what people need to be prepared for in my opinion. Hmm. So in a Bitcoin world, uh, if you're able to exchange Bitcoin for a CBDC, are they going to be able to inflate and create credit with the CBDC? Yeah, they're totally separate systems. I mean, that Bitcoin is not going to prevent them from creating MMT. But there's going to be an exchange rate, though. Yeah. 
it's going to be it's going to be tough for them to say, oh, well, we can trade your Bitcoin for 100 CBDC now. Well, Bitcoin's going to be worth a lot. I'm not saying it's going to, I mean, you could say Bitcoin's going to hyperinflate, I guess, in a way. It's going to be hugely valuable, but it's not going to stop them from creating, hmm. you know, more credit. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, it's going to be ugly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm definitely not a doom and gloom guy. Like I may sound like that on Twitter because I use Twitter really to talk about, you know, problems more than I use it to talk about like, you know, what's going right. But I'm a very optimistic person and I think uh, I plan optimistically. And, uh, um, you know, and I should also say we have never talked about God on this podcast, but really for me, I'm, I'm a God-centered person and that's that's what guides all my, okay. all my thinking and my actions um and my belief in jesus christ yeah i'm sorry i didn't bring that up i know i know that that's something that no that's okay about yeah um so john chef is positive about, about the uh where we're going yeah i think it's positive and negative but i think uh i think we have control uh over only two things our attitude and our effort and uh, I think whoever we touch, we should make uh, we should make better. Anything we touch, we can make better. And that is within our control. It doesn't matter if the world is falling apart. What mayhem is happening? War is happening. Mm. Every single day, whoever you touch, you can bring something positive to them. And that's your true life, right? Like that's our actual experiences, regardless of what the history books said was happening around us at that moment. Cool. Well, I, I really appreciate you meeting with me. It's nice to finally catch up with you. I've, I've meant to do it for a while. Yes, sir. I, should I use Frito as as your? I don't want to. I don't want to dox you. Yeah, I'm just 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 uh, in public, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, all right, Frito. All right. Thank you, sir. Um, you have a great day, and uh, hopefully, uh, we can keep in touch. Yes, sir. Have a good one.